Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Uh, a happy Thanksgiving to you all. Um, and what are you thankful for? Uh, I want to say that this morning, I'm thankful for my wife. Uh, in the morning show, I mentioned my family, but I didn't include her. So, honey, just because uh, I know you're watching, I am very, very thankful for you. Um, but uh, let's, let's go on. It's good to be back in front of you again. As uh, many of you are well aware, we plan to start our in-person gathering on November 1st. The 909 with soul kids and the 1111 without soul kids. And uh, as we get closer to the date, um, if you don't have children, I'd like to encourage you to attend the 1111 as all space is limited, right? So uh, our live stream is going to continue, but it will change from this time at 909 to actually to 1111. And there are two reasons for this. One is that we don't want to keep our soul kids longer than one hour in the building. So the 909 is simply going to be worshiping the word and the kids go straight upstairs. So the 1111 will look more like what you're used to with the exception of the coffee break. And more information will be coming. Also, the 909 uh, will give our audio department an opportunity for them to give us a proper mix for the music and everything else uh, for the 11.11 live stream because that live stream coming out good and quality is important for us as it is for you. So now I know it's easier for us to just grab a cup of coffee, sit in front of our computer and in our PJs, but allow me to remind you why in-person attendance is important. And other than the fact that many of us don't like being confined to our homes and forced to watch a screen all day, right? Here's why church attendance for you and your family matters. You can't serve from a sofa, okay? You can't have real, a real community of faith when you're just simply on your couch. You can't experience the power of a room full of believers worshiping together on your couch. There is something Something about our faith being one that is lived out in song and in corporate worship. I can't explain it. I'm just telling you how it is. And as Christians, we're not to be these consumers. We're to be contributors, right? We just don't watch. We engage. We give. We sacrifice. We encourage. We do life together. And the church needs you, and you need the church. And this is really the whole premise of 1 Corinthians as we're walking through that. So I want to encourage you, if you can, to get off your couch on November 1st and come and be a part of the community the best we can during this pandemic. It's not going to be the same as what it was, but it's the best we can. So you come, you use your talents, you use your gifts to advance the kingdom and to reach others and to build up others. Come alongside one another physically in a social distancing way, right? Not just through the screen. And now, understand, I am incredibly grateful for technology to keep people uh, connected that, that can't come to the facility or that need to stay away from the general public for health reasons. But I also have to say that there is nothing like being together under one big roof. Uh, it will never be... Um, uh, comfortable, so to speak, uh, just sitting on our couch. The, the church on the couch is quasi-comfortable, but it will never be the same as the church together in the sanctuary. You understand? You can actually register right now uh, if you have the Church Center app on your phone, or if you don't, just go to our webpage, 
click on events and then look for in-person gathering and you can then register now for which gathering you want to be a part of on November 1st. And then after November 1st, we will clear that slate and on Monday, every Monday, there'll be a new slate for you to register. Uh, with all that said, um, uh, we're about to actually enter into a hotly debated and much-awaited chapter here in Corinthians. Paul lays out this discussion to a dumpster fire of a church. And if we walked into the church in Corinth the first century, in the first century, I think we would actually be very shocked. You know, people were getting drunk on communion wine. They weren't caring for those who were struggling right in their midst. They were suing each other over petty indifferences. There were sexual lifestyle issues that were causing confusion outside the church, never mind inside the church. They were elevating certain speakers and preachers to certain points of pride. Now what they're doing as we come into chapter 14 is that they're using spiritual gifts in the same way. And so what we have here is a church that is full of chaos. Now before we go any further, I need to say this. I said a person's interpretation is often strongly influenced by their experience or lack of experience. Do you hear that? A person's interpretation is often strongly influenced by their experience or lack of experience. Let me share with you about my own experience with the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. I'm a child of devout Christian parents. I invited my, uh, Christ into my life when I was about 9, uh, 10, 11. I can't remember exactly. I remember the moment. I remember all those details. I can't remember my age. Uh, I was exposed to Pentecostal churches and environments when, you know, all my life. And uh, when I was in my mid-teens, I had an experience with God that Pentecostals would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit in which I spoke in tongues at that time. And I knew that this experience was from God because I sensed a huge increase in, in love in my life towards God, towards others. And I wanted to share, I wanted to talk all about this, this, this faith with other people. Now, like most of you, I wasn't a perfect Christian. I know that's hard to believe, but, you know, I, like everyone else, we, we make bad choices at times growing up. But eventually I had an encounter with God that, that I could simply say that God called me clearly into the ministry. And uh, so once I graduated from the University of Manitoba with my Bachelor of Arts, I purposely decided to go to a Pentecostal Bible college and earn my Master of Divinity degree. It was there that I actually began to question everything, not only uh, my own experience, but now I also started questioning the experience of others. And because I was involved in ministry while I was there, I served, I attended a number of Pentecostal churches. You know, I had seen everything and more, honestly, under the sun. And a lot of it all under the guise of, you know, it's the moving of the Holy Spirit. Some crazy, some wacky, some real, uh, some profound. So I began to look internally. I began to look inside myself and question everything that I've witnessed and personally experienced regarding the Holy Spirit. And so in my reflection and my studies, it actually began to drive me deeper into the Bible and to ask some very hard questions. What does the Bible really say about these experiences? Eventually, I transferred uh, to Winnipeg Theological Seminary, and there I would actually finish my master's degree. And... Uh, my thesis upon graduation was entitled The Uses and Abuses of the Charismatic Gifts. So in a nutshell, you know, I, I talked about how uh, the spiritual or the charismatic gifts are for the church today, and to neglect or to ignore them is what I would call charisphobia, or to use them without restraint, I called charismania. And both of those were the abuses within the church, and there need to be become a balanced approach, a more balanced approach 
and the uses of the spiritual gifts and the understanding of the Holy Spirit and how he works in our lives today. So, you know, I have personally experienced what I would call an Acts 2 experience. I've prayed in tongues. I've also given interpretation in tongues. I've, I've also been on the negative receiving end of, oh, you're a Pentecostal? Speak in tongues for me right now. Or my personal favorite, which really is my sarcasm coming through here, uh, I had a lunch discussion in seminary with a fellow believer from another denomination. When he found out that uh, I identified as a Pentecostal as well as uh, my travel companion with me, he accused us and he accused my Pentecostal friend and myself of being demon-possessed and actually got up, refused to even sit or eat with us. Now, this was in seminary. Speaking of which, my friend at the time also started to let food come out of his mouth as, as we ate, to which I thought he was a complete idiot, which wasn't helping our case much. But uh, it, it was interesting, that dynamic that began to take place, and to see other people and how they perceived uh, my theology and my theological expression as I lived it out. And so as we approach 1 Corinthians, I don't speak to you as an outsider, but as a careful observer and even a participant, if you understand what I'm saying. At least uh, these practices are uh, as I've experienced them in our day. But I also have to be honest, I do come with a lot of cynicism. Uh, since I've observed many abuses of the gift within my own Pentecostal and charismatic circles. And one of the things that I've noticed is that there is some confusion between the experiences and acts with the Holy Spirit and how they are compared to the gifts of the Spirit in Corinthians. So allow me to sort of give you some basic structural teaching, and then we'll move into our text. Because many people have confused the experience of Acts chapter 2 with the gifts of the Holy Spirit in, in 1 Corinthians. In Acts chapter 2, we read about what is known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is the, essentially the, the, the birthplace of the church. And we see that the followers of Jesus were to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And what happens is that he shows up. Acts chapter 5, and it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. But not only there. We also read of the Holy Spirit falling on believers in uh, Acts 10.46, Acts 19.6. And the initial evidence that, that proved that this was happening is that they spoke in tongues. Something happened. The Holy Spirit shows up, hits these people. There's an audible response coming from their mouth. <clears throat> so here's my Cole's Note explanation. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is an experience in which believers yield control of themselves to the Holy Spirit. It's something that is subsequent uh, our uh, conversion. Paul writes in Ephesians 19 that we as believers need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep on being filled is his um, appeal to us. And even John the Baptist, when referring to Jesus, he says, look at I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I can't or I'm not even worthy to carry, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So some will say that the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is that a believer comes to know Christ in a more intimate way, and they receive power to witness, to grow spiritually, according to John uh, uh, 16, 13 to 15. Some will teach that we are, uh, on, on the other side of the, the, the spectrum, some teach that we are all already baptized in the Holy Spirit once we're saved. 
And I will say that theologically we're filled with the Spirit of God at salvation, that, you know, that, that we're made into a new creation. I get that. But Scripture is very clear that there is a subsequent experience to salvation. Acts 8, 12 to 17, we read, when, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Okay, so they were baptized in water. They believed they were baptized in water, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They then laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This encounter is also mentioned in Acts chapter 10, 44 to 46. You know, and I say all of this to draw a distinction between the baptism of the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues and the gift of the Spirit, and one of the gifts being speaking in tongues. The gifts of the Spirit are these supernatural abilities given by God through the exercising of which believers are enabled to minister effectively and directly in particular situations. So back in, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 4 to 11, they serve the dual function of building up the church and demonstrating the presence of God within the church. Building up the church and demonstrating the presence of God within the church. It's a dual function. And so today what we find is that there are those who call themselves cessationists. And they believe that the spiritual gifts are no longer in use today. I need to say that nowhere in the New Testament are we told that the gifts that are listed by Paul would cease in this apostolic age. Just because some theologians were puzzled by the decline of spiritual gifts in churches of their day, and they reasoned that these gifts must be only temporary, doesn't make it so. I'm not about to argue against this stand, but rather I just go to the scriptures and I say, read 1 Corinthians 13, which we'll look at next week, but it says love never ends, which we looked at last week, sorry. It says love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Well, simply put, the perfect hasn't come yet. You look at the world around you. Are we perfect? No, no, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. And so the gifts are still for today. Now, the subject of tongues is one of the most controversial issues in the church today. Over history, it has divided churches. I know of stories here in Manitoba that when people got filled with the Holy Spirit in their specific church, uh, it would cause such a ruckus and uproar. It, it was outside of their box of how God was supposed to work that they actually asked people to leave. Some have said that these you know, tongue talkers, as I've heard, are over-emotional, uneducated fanatics on the fringes of Christianity. Or worse yet, like I've been accused of, of being demon-possessed. And that is something to be feared. On the other end, some charismatics preach that you weren't really saved unless you spoke in tongues. Again, extremes cause serious divisions in the church. And today I find that many Christians are asking questions about the Holy Spirit and how he works. When people see scholars with theological doctorates embracing this New Testament gift, thinking Christians are demanding more satisfactory answers. And it turns out that these answers are coming from people who have embraced the charismatic experience that played a vital part in the first century church. 
I actually find that there are more people who are open to having an experience with the moving of the Holy Spirit than there are that are closed. But there are still some concerns about appearing a little crazy, and, and history has shown us that, that people have done crazy things, and we blame it on the Holy Spirit. Can I just say this? Just because you've had a bad experience with a restaurant, a doctor, or a clothing store doesn't make them all bad. You still visit restaurants, you still see doctors, and you still buy clothes. You understand what I'm getting at? Now, the whole chapter of, of uh, 14 of 1 Corinthians is devoted to the comparison by Paul of two gifts, that of tongues and the gift of prophecy. Both of these gifts are obviously being featured and focused on in the church in Corinth. But Paul gives us some very helpful insights to these gifts and how they contrast with one another. But the most important verse in this whole chapter is the first. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. And, of course, what Paul is doing is he's, he's tying back to the love chapter of last week. And it's good to remind ourselves that this is the essence of the exercise of any spiritual gift. And here's where we get our balance. Love is to be the basic biblical reason uh, for exercising a spiritual gift. It's all about love. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has brilliantly declared that the preeminence of love for Christians in, in chapter 13, that's what, it, what it's all about. Now, since love is the greatest, that is something that we have to pursue. We have to pursue love. Love is the urge. It's the hunger to reach out for somebody else's benefit. That's what love is. That is to be the controlling theme throughout this whole chapter in both the discussion of tongues and of prophesying. Love, education, building somebody else up, putting others' needs ahead of your own. It, that is the issue. There's no question about it. Love is a sphere in which your spiritual gift operates, and apart from that, it actually then becomes an annoyance. See, if you have the gift of teaching and you exercise that gift without love, your stage becomes the place for the narcissist, right? I got it. I know it all. Or you look at gifted communicators. Communicating apart from love can make them very manipulative to get their own means. And so the sphere of love makes the spiritual gifts effective. Back in chapter 12, Paul says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And Paul keeps going back to this one idea. The purpose of the spiritual gifts is the edification of the body, the building up of the body. And so Paul is speaking out against any gift that is used in a self-directed way that doesn't fit the purpose. And there was nothing wrong with the Corinthians' desire for spiritual gifts, but they had made this godly desire into an obsessive pursuit. And so Paul continues to say that they are to desire the better spiritual gifts, which would be extra... Uh, which would be exercised amongst themselves to help grow in spiritual power, to help grow in effectiveness and, and influence in the city of Corinth. And so clearly, one spiritual gift that is most effective in that direction is what Paul calls prophesying. And that's why Paul says, follow the way of love, eagerly desire gifts of spirit, especially prophecy. So just so you know, the gift of prophecy is, is not just predicting the future like Nostradamus or some wacko Old Testament prophet. 
that can be an element that is occasionally in it. As found when we read Acts chapter 21, where we read about this guy named Agabus, who came down from Judea, uh, coming over to us. He took Paul's belt, he tied his own hands and feet with it, and he said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. That was a prophetic word. But prophecy is basically the explanation of the present in the light of the revelation of God. The closest term that we could call it by today is, I would actually refer to it as expository preaching, uh, the unfolding the mind of God, applying it to the daily struggles of life. You know, we know Paul does not mean prophecy is identical to preaching because there was actually a specific Greek word available for preaching, caruso. And Paul doesn't use this word. Preaching is essentially the merging of, of the gifts of teaching, exhortation, but prophecy has the primary elements of prediction and revelation. The words of a prophet must always be supported by the Bible's principles and teachings. And I believe, honestly, I believe it's a gift that I function when I stand in front of you and open the scriptures. This gift that Paul says is the gift to desire above all others. Uh, Beginning with verse 2 and on through verse 5 is a little section that deals with the comparison of the two gifts and their value to the church. Paul writes, he says, for anybody who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church would be edified. And so Paul, he's writing, he has a sort of pastoral corrective tone as he begins to address the abuse of the spiritual gifts here in the church. And obviously in the church here in Corinth, there was an overemphasis on tongues. There was an underemphasis on on prophecy. And and tongues was the one gift in particular that they thought if you were to exercise it, it, it made you very spiritual. The nature of tongues is a study in, in and of itself. And some hold that You know, tongues are a bona fide foreign language, as interpreted in Acts chapter 2. Others, however, understand tongues as ecstatic utterances, and numerous commentators actually suggest that the Corinthians spoke in what would be called, or what some would call a heavenly tongue, not just a bona fide language. Now, some have uh, done linguistic analysis of people speaking in tongues, and they've concluded that they're not, you know, speaking any real language, that they're just jabbering and babbling and gibberish. And I would have to say, yeah, it sounds like nonsense to human ears. And I think that we should expect it to sound like nonsense because Paul plainly says in verse 2 that the Spirit he sp- the spirit speaks mysteries. You know, However, this doesn't mean that all in- intelligible speech is the legitimate gift of tongues. Some not understanding the gift may try to imitate it, fake it, or just try to prove something. But Paul addresses that the speaker is addressing God and not man. This is very important. Because disregarding this verse leads to some of the most significant misunderstandings regarding the gift of the tongues and is believing tongues is a supernatural way to communicate man to man instead of man to God. Let me explain. Because if we miss this, we misunderstand Acts chapter 2, and we think that the disciples were preaching to the crown in tongues on the day of Pentecost. 
No, go back and read what they're doing. Instead, when the Holy Spirit fell, they were speaking to God, and the multinational crowd around them overheard their praises to God. It was then Peter who stands up and he begins to explain and preach the word to the crowd. And so we can be led to believe, though, that the gift of tongues is the ability to speak um, another language. And all Paul is speaking about here is you know, interpreting the preacher's sermon in somebody's native tongue. But no one needs to interpret the preacher's sermon to God. This is not what's happening here. If we misunderstand this, we misunderstand what is really happening when somebody attempts to interpret a tongue and addresses his or her message to the church. A true interpretation of the gift of tongues will be addressed to God, not to people. It will be a prayer. It will be a praise. It will be some sort of other communication to God. And if we misunderstand this, we can misuse the gift of tongues, um, using it in a way that draws unnecessarily uh, attention just to ourselves. Paul adds that he who prophesies speaks to men. And this, in contrast to the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy is directed to people. It is God speaking supernaturally or often naturally supernaturally, as I like to say it, through people to people. So not only is the gift of prophecy directed towards people, it's all also largely positive in its character. It is used in their strengthening and their edification and the building up of people. It doesn't tear them down. Encouraging or exhortation is like the speech from a coach in a locker room rally going you know, to the team to tell them to encourage them to go out to perform the way that they've been trained. You know, you should be encouraged. You should be uh, and, and not discouraged when, when somebody is speaking over you. And finally, th- uh, there's this thing called comfort, which is the idea of not only consoling but also strengthening. It doesn't just cry with someone hurting. It puts uh, its arms around them and strengthens them to carry the load. As Paul continues to write, listen carefully what he's saying. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or a prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as a pipe or a harp, how will anybody know what tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? And again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? I love the fact that Paul uses musical instruments because instruments... Uh, have to use a certain pitch. They have to use a beat to communicate their song, right? You need scales. You need tempos. You need rhymes. You need to create the music. To create beautiful music, there has to be a clarity in there. It must be hearable. It must be understandable to our ears. And if they do not sound like that, the music then is really not accessible to the listener. Sounds are coming out, but they, they, they're just not understood. This is what Paul's saying. The same is true for a trumpet. It can make an, an uncertain sound that is no profit for others, like or it can be a rallying point for people. Think about it this way. This has been my house over the last who knows how many years. It may feel good for a child to bang on a piano. <laughs> they may like the sound. But for anybody else in the room, it could be very unpleasant, right? And even some communicating to God with the gift of tongues, even those people who are doing that may be blessed. But what Paul's saying is nobody else is, unless there is somebody there who can function with the gift of interpretation. Paul writes, he says, so it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anybody know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. And undoubtedly, there are 
there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If, then, I do not grasp the meaning of what somebody is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. And so it is with you. Language is a gift from God. We can communicate with language because we're, we are made in the image of God. Modern linguists know that man could not have invented language any more than our circulatory system was created. Most modern linguists believe that language is so unique, you know, apart from God, uh, it must have been a part of some sort of unique evolutionary process. Now, language could not be the product of man putting together sounds all by himself. Uh, I found in my reading that there, there are many universal human sounds, um, like raspberry, believe it or not, which are not part of any human language. Uh, and and if, so if man invented language on his own, it would make sense for some language to use that sound. So language is so complex because language exists as whole systems, not as small parts put together. Most modern linguists believe that all languages come from one original language. Knowing language is a gift from God and all languages have meaning, we can trust that if we speak in the gift of tongues, that God understands. If no one else does, including ourselves can, but God does. And so what Paul does is, he, you know, he understands this. And he says, however, he begins to encourage the church. And since you are eager for the spiritual gifts, try to excel in those that build up the church. Paul's positive about the gift of tongues. Because of the tone of this chapter, it's, it's easy for us to think that Paul was down on the gift of tongues. Not at all. Paul even values the gift of tongues in his own life. And he continues, he says, For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in spirit, how can somebody else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they don't know what you're saying? Interesting. How does somebody else affirm what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but nobody else is edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Isn't that interesting? So there's no doubt that he knew the value of, of speaking in tongues in his own life. And Paul was able to unburden his soul before God in a way going beyond human language and intellect. Um, yeah, again, the New Testament talks about you know, uh, our spirits grown. Where, the, where words are just, just not um, uh, enough. Um, he, he could pray, he could praise, he could intercede beyond his ability to understand and even articulate. And Paul wanted every Christian to actually know the same blessing. And as, as good as the gift of tongues is, Paul sees the gift of prophecy as better for the church as a whole. Why? Because the focus here is clearly that the church may receive edification. The people will be encouraged and built up. Paul's context in 1 Corinthians 14 is more focused on what the Corinthian Christians do when they come together as a church than what they do on their own devotional life. There are things that are fine for a Christian to do in their own devotional life, which may be disruptive or annoying or self-exalting for a Christian to do in a church meeting. And it's quite possible that the gift of tongues is just one of those things. And I need to say that the Holy Spirit does not make us do strange, bizarre things against our will. 
He will never make someone shout in tongues or speak in tongues in a strange manner, though they may do it on their own initiative. That's that's always there. Because, you know, we as people, we're crazy, and it's the way it is. But the Holy Spirit is gentle. We'll get into that next week. You know, we should never credit or blame the Holy Spirit, you know, for for stuff that's, that's chaotic and out of order. And, and like I said, we'll look at that a little deeper next week. So since Paul is focusing on when the Corinthians Christians come together as a church, it's clear why he regards the gift of prophecy as greater. Paul recognized the gift of tongues as valuable for himself, but it was not valuable for him to speak to others with the gift of tongues. They couldn't understand him. They couldn't be edified. And the goal of gathering together as much uh, as the church must be mutually beneficial. And so if they're there must be tongues. Uh, you know, Paul said there has to be an interpretation so that there can be an edification, and like I said, more of that next week. And so Paul has reasoned with the Corinthians about this matter, using one argument of another, and it's now, it's almost like the letter sort of changes a little bit, and he scolds them, and he says, you know, grow up, because that's the message that he, he has coming here. He points them to a higher call, and he says this. He goes, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regards to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it's written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Okay, now work with me. Let's start by saying that this passage is very confusing. All right? Paul begins to use an argument of Scripture uh, and turns, a quote, turns to a quotation from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. That is a uh, prophecy concerning the, the time of the Babylonian exile of the Jewish people. See, what happened is that the Jews wouldn't listen to God's warning in their own language. Now, they have to learn the lessons from foreign-speaking oppressors, from their language. And Paul, though, so then he concludes that, that tongues, in the case of unbelieving Israelites who went into exile, it's a sign for those unbelievers. And by extension, a sign of those Corinthians who won't believe Paul's teachings. Prophecy, in the case of the Israelites who wouldn't believe their Old Testament prophecy or prophets, is a sign for believers. That is a sign that is received and accepted only by believers. And this appears to be what Paul's meaning is. And what makes it confusing is that his application now seems to be the opposite. And so he clarifies it in a practical way in verse 23. So if the whole church comes together and everybody speaks in tongues, think about this happening, right? And inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say, you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in, while everybody is prophesying, they are, they are convicted of sin. They are brought under the judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. You see how the Holy Spirit begins to work in somebody's life. So they will fall down and worship God, explaining, God is really among you. See, during that time, most of the time, the church, they, they, when they met, it was small house churches, anywhere from 6 to 50, depending on the size of the house, obviously. 
Um, and that was also uh, related to the wealth of the owner. But here Paul seems to have a, in mind some sort of larger gathering, you know, when literally whole churches come together in one place, maybe possibly even renting, you know, a rented hall. And so this, this gathering, this, this gathering would include believers, of course, but also who weren't committed believers. These might be spouses of believers or family members or friends who are curious about the Christian faith, but they haven't made any commitment to Jesus as of yet. They're just checking it out. There's a stir in the community. They're being invited to participate. And it's the reaction, when you look at this, it's the reaction of these unbelievers that concerns Paul and the impression they have of this Christian communi community. So if, if, if these are seekers and they come to the conclusion that you guys are out of your mind, then these unrestrained, untranslated tongues may turn them away from Jesus. That's Paul's concern. Now, again, not every believer is going to buy into what we do in a church gathering. I, our non-believer will buy into what we do in a church gathering, or believers for that matter. But this is what Paul's getting at. He's, you know, he's worried about what's being communicated. Um, he's worried about people thinking that you're nuts. He's worried about the fact that they're going to go off and spread the impression that Christians are crazy people. You know? But if unbelievers are present when the gift of prophecy is being exercised, God can speak to their hearts directly, either by a prophetic word about their situation or their individual situations or by maybe a more general word where the Holy Spirit speaking powerfully to their hearts, bringing a deep conviction. I can't tell you how many times I've heard it from people who would say to me, like, have you read my mail? You were, it's like you were just you were talking to me. Well, that's not me. That was the Holy Spirit. That's him working through that gift of prophecy. That's him opening up your eye, using me as a vessel, a very imperfect one, mind you, but using me you, uh, to speak to you. And it's as if I'm reading your mail. And these untranslated tongues result, though, in the impression of crazy people. Well, prophecy in itself brings people to the brink of conversion. So what Paul is saying is, look, at the choice between these two is not too difficult. And so when I read these final verses, this is where my heart gets touched. But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everybody's prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under the judgment of all, as the secret of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down, worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. And honestly, it's so sanctuary, that's my desire. It's obvious non-believers came to the church in Corinth. They were attracted by something. They were invited by somebody. And I believe it was a supernatural life-changing event in these converts' lives. They're, they saw life change in other people. They wanted something. They heard about this. And that is actually my prayer for you today that people would gather with us and that the Holy Spirit would speak to their hearts and they can help but affirm that God is really among us. Building up others is emphasized because worship is in this public setting, in a church setting. It's, it's community-based. And unfortunately, in many churches today, worship is simply a bunch of people who happen to, to be together worshiping God but not really having deep connections with one another. Or even worse, just watching somebody on a stage. It could be a disconnect. It could be a chaotic event. And it could be an event that is only focused on what you personally can feel. We make it all about us and my feelings. That's not what it's about. First Corinthians makes it clear that public worship isn't about doing things the way we find uh, best. It, 
or in a way that might build us up but harm others. The kind of worship described here in the community of believers coming together, we, we are individuals, but we're part of a greater whole. And since our congregational gatherings are communal, we should be focused on others more than looking for our own personal individual's experiences. Focusing on others. Uh, focusing uh, on others also brings order, right? And it brings unity to our worship experience. It allows others to have an opportunity to participate so that it's not just the people on stage we're worshiping the Lord, that we are all part of it, that the worship is happening in the seats, not just at the altar in, in some churches or just from a pulpit, but it's a corporate experience. So what are we meant to take away and apply from this section of, of God's Word for our lives? First, that our desire for spiritual gifts has to come from the place of other-centered love. Paul says, don't, you know, desire spiritual gifts. Those are good things, but it's about other people. And I believe that every believer should constantly be seeking a more intimate encounter with the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. And that we should not be afraid of God manifesting himself over us, such as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. However, our desire and our use of the gifts in our community must be focused first on building one another up. You know, and again, tongues are considered by some to be one of the greatest gifts. But what you know what? When used improperly, it can serve to confuse and alienate those around us. Used properly, tongues is actually a personal edifying encounter between you and God. As a church, we should focus on gifts like serving on giving, proclaiming the word, gifts that lift us. We should focus on our brothers and sisters and, and meet their needs before, <clears throat> really, before um, meeting the needs of, let's say, unbelievers or even ourselves. And finally, we need to reach that you know, everybody needs to speak in tongue in order to be saved or that certain gifts are necessary for salvation. I think we need to reject events that primarily people's individual spiritual experiences uh, we need for our minds to be just engaged as our hearts and have uh, a love for speaking that is clear that is inspired as paul said it's better to speak five words that can be understood than countless more that than that cannot be so with all that may the lord enable all of us to speak rightly to one another and may each of us grow further in our giftings and our talents. And as we read in Psalm 19, verse 14, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to in the sight of our Lord and our Redeemer. And so next week, we're going to look closer at the guidelines that Paul lays out for when the church gathers together. It's a doozy. Before we go, before I go, and uh, enjoy some, I think we're having chicken. Wow, I'm making it. Nobody has a choice. But I do have a song of reflection that uh, I want you to, to, to listen to. It's called Clean. Just take some time, listen to the words, watch the words as you go across the street, and just, just allow the Spirit to speak to you. And so before that song of reflection, let me pray. Father, I pray that you'll help this chapter to be corrected for actually all of our churches, the ones with too little order and the ones with too much order. Help us to be open to the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our church, in our life groups. 
May we have freedom amongst us, Holy Spirit. And let your gifts flow freely so that we might be built up. God, let the gift of prophecy be restored to our churches in health and in balance. And in Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. So, so Sanctuary, here is your blessing this Thanksgiving. So Sanctuary, you are the hands and feet of God in Winnipeg. You're called to soothe suffering. You are called to live with compassion. And you are called to build up God's loving peace. So as you go into the world this week, share the gifts that you have been given. Build up the body of Christ and care holy, carry holy to the world around you. Go in love, go in peace, go with God, and live the church. Amen. We'll see you next week.